Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Scott Wallace. He just published a book. Title of the book, if you see it here on YouTube, or Rockfin. This is my first string to Rockfin. I'm glad to be over there. I just destroyed my Facebook page today, so I'll never stream there again uh, after some of the censorship that's still ongoing, especially over some of these uh, medical misinformation that is being promulgated by our government. But that's just one side of the corruption. His book is titled Breaking the Spell Over America, How to Stop Satan's Plan to Destroy America. And a really interesting book. He has a fascinating background and a lot of uh, experiences with the legal system. And unfortunately, the American legal system is not in great shape. I say that, but uh, he's written many books. This is not his first book. He also also wrote How to Know if Your Prophecy is Really from God and What to Do if It Is. That was published 2012. Plugging into the spirit of prophecy and also secret corruption. Uh, Scott Wallace is a modern-day prophet, writes and speaks with amazing clarity, the voice of God. In 1987, he was called into the prophetic office by an open vision where he saw God's glory. Later, he heard God's audible voice that moved him into the miracle ministry. His life and ministry are characterized by signs, wonders, and miracles. In Decade of Destiny, Wallace accurately predicted the 1990s revival season and the following war season in the 2000s. He has prepared believers to enter into those seasons with an understanding of the times and season. And in the third Reformation is Coming, published 2003, he prophesied of the coming reformational movement in the church. That Reformation, Wallace writes, will radically transform the church. And now, 14 years later, that prophecy is taking shape. So again, it's Scott Wallace. Last name is W-A-L-L-I-S. Title of the book we're going to talk about today. Breaking the Spell Over America, How to Stop Satan's Plan to Destroy America. So Scott Wallace, welcome to the show. I appreciate that, William. I'm glad to be uh, with you and with your audience. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to share and talk about my books, and specifically this book, which I believe is uh, really uncovers what, what's going on in our judicial system today and how to overcome that. And I really focus on the church and what the church should do, which... Um, you know, that's sort of my my background. I, I wrote Secret Corruption to detail the corruption, which even since I wrote Secret Corruption, the corruption has just gotten so much worse. And, and actually, I talked about that in Secret Corruption. I said that we had uh, five to seven years uh, before that corruption would erupt into the violence that we're seeing today and what we began to see, you know, um, you know, and and uh and uh, before the before 2020, so it it uh, it, it really is a uh, you know I think a critical season for America, and really for the church in America to stand up and begin to make its voice heard. Not so much just in politics, which many ministers have focused on, but really uh, understanding the authority that we have in prayer to stop the plans of the enemy, and that's what my the, this book is about. And can you kind of talk, you have a, you had, you said you had a, a miraculous vision back in 1987. Can you talk about where it all began and then your ministry and then your involvement in this long, decades long litigation and, and what insights it gave you, please? Oh yeah, no, I, I, I'd be happy to. I, I was attending the University of Iowa uh, back in 1987, which I, I really loved uh, the University of Iowa. It's a beautiful campus if you've never been there before, but, uh, and I was studying electrical, I was studying engineering at the time and ended up going into uh, 
electrical engineering, but I was, uh, you know, I had had some people come and share the gospel with me and I didn't know anything about the gospel. I didn't go to church. I didn't grow up in the church and I wasn't really even looking to, uh, to go down that path. I was uh, looking to go into electrical engineering because before that I was, uh, I really enjoyed uh, golfing and was looking to move into, wanted to be a professional golfer. I had, uh, I was a scratch golfer at the time and could, you know, shoot par golf and even break par. But, uh, you know, I was in the University of Iowa. I had these individuals come and share the gospel with me. And I didn't know whether to believe it or not. I, it really sounded, uh, I, I didn't understand it, to be honest with you. But then they shared it with me and they said, would you be willing to read the Bible? And so I said, yes, I'd be willing to read the Bible. So I, they pointed me to the Gospel of John and I had agreed to read uh, the Bible, the Gospel of John. And so I started reading the first chapter, the second chapter, and I got to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. And what I did, by that time I began to like Jesus because from my perspective, Jesus was a man's man. And so I grew up in sort of a rough and tumble environment. My, my stepfather was a lineman for Commonwealth Edison. And so I grew up around those guys who were rough and tumble guys and uh, like to go to the bars and like to go drinking. And, and I would go there too. Uh, you know, they would take me there. My parents would, and uh, before they would come home, but, you know, I was in bed, it was about 12 midnight and I just reading, finished reading the gospel of John and I was lying in bed. It was completely dark in my room. I was on a bunk bed at the, that we had built in the dorm room that I was staying in. And uh, I heard this voice in my mind, and I recognized that it was not my own voice. It was the voice of someone else. And the voice said, you're a sinner. And I was like, well, how can that be? So I said that back to the voice. I said, how can that be? And immediately I had this download. I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost like having uh, just a complete download into my mind of understanding uh, Adam and Eve in the original sin. And so at that moment, I said, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. And so that began my journey uh, as a Christian. And I felt my sins physically lift off of me. Um, it's sort of hard to describe, but if you can imagine having a car lying on top of you, that's what it physically felt like. And so I wasn't aware that I was a sinner. I felt that I was a good person. And I'm thinking, you know, how can I be a sinner? And then shortly thereafter, I uh, ended up having a second uh, visitation from God. And I had an open vision where I saw the glory of God. And the only way I can describe it is to imagine if you could bundle 10,000 sons into one and have be looking at the light, the combined light from that the brightness of the light, and yet it wouldn't burn your eyes. Uh, you could look at it directly. And then I heard these words in my in my mind, not in my uh, uh, not in my uh, uh, physically, but I heard the words. Uh, two scriptures came into my mind, and one was. Uh, you know, try the spirits to see whether they're of God. Every spirit that does not confess 
that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And so that was the first one. And then the second one was, even as Moses succeeding feared and quaked. And so that was sort of the beginning point of my Christian experience. Uh, I ended up graduating from the University of Iowa and went uh, into, uh, didn't end up going into electrical engineering. God providentially guided me in a different pathway. And eventually I ended up uh, writing my first book, Decade of Destiny. And that was a prophetic word to the church and to America in 19... 1991. And what I had prophesied was that we would have a season of revival and it would be a seven year period. And then after that season of revival, we would have a seven year period of war. And so that season of revival began in 1993. And then that season of war began in 2000. And so we saw those events played out in the natural. And then I talked about, uh, you know, after that, a, a season of uh, just a, a rest season between 2007 and 2010. But uh, where we are today is we're in a season of summer and a time of persecution. And so again, all of this was revealed to me back in 1991. And so the Lord clearly spelled out what was going to be happening. And we've, we've been seeing that persecution take place. Um, you know, on, on a moderate scale, uh, it hasn't been extensive to this point, but you have seen some pastors being jailed, like Rodney Howard Brown, um, even pastors, uh, you know, out in California, you know, up in Canada. And so there's really, uh, you know, we are in a, in a, a season uh, of, of summer in a time of persecution. And, and I don't think that the church really understands what's going on. Uh, behind the scenes. And so that's uh, why I wrote my book on breaking the spell um, over America is to pull that back. But then, and, in, in, uh, you know, I, I planted uh, two different churches, one in Illinois and one in uh, Florida. My wife and I moved down to Florida in uh, 2019 at the very beginning. And, uh, and we've, we, we love it down here. And we, we love Governor DeSantis and, uh, you know, he's doing such a great job down here. And, um, and even now there's a hurricane, you know, I'm, uh, that's going on right, right outside. But, um, you know, I'm grateful to be in, in the interview and I'm grateful for what God is doing. So. All right. So you've had a, a very long journey and it is really true. This persecution, the churches were shut down, but you could still go buy alcohol and certain things were still open. So there was very curious. There's a lot, I think, a lot of darkness of what's happened over the last two or three years, too. A lot of deception and lies in this whole pandemic, pandemic, whatever you want to call it. But you've also, during that time of your ministry, you had really an insight into litigation and the judicial system in the United States. Can you talk about what happened to you? Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. In 2004, you know, I had uh, I, a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Ron Erickson, wanted to buy a company called USA Baby. And USA Baby was the number one baby furniture uh, retailer in America at the time. And so we, uh, 
you know, I was able to help him. The, the process started in 2001. It was completed in 2004. And it was really a, a momentous event in my life. You know, I had worked really hard to get to that point. And you don't realize a lot of times just how much work it takes to be able to go from really not having a whole bunch to suddenly having a great deal. And so I was reminded, I talk about this in the book, I was standing there with a $50,000 check in my hand because I had helped my friend buy this uh, major franchise company. And it was really a, a wonderful experience. But then shortly thereafter, I started having this litigation come against me. And first it was with the church. And so that, you know, we had moved into a new facility in the city of Elgin, didn't like the fact that we had uh, were in a uh, where we were, and they claimed that the zoning wasn't for churches, even though right next door was the United Way. And so the United Way doesn't do much different than what we would be doing, which is ministering to people and and helping people. I mean, it's a, you know, it's they're non-religious and we're religious, but they offer meetings, they offer services to the community. They have people coming in. So it wasn't a, a major, uh, it wasn't a major thing, but the city of Elgin came against us. And so I began this process of litigation. And then shortly thereafter, uh, after that litigation happened, I was, uh, my friend, uh, Ron Erickson was sued, uh, and, uh, USA baby was sued and I was sued. And so that sort of began, the, that was sort of the kickoff of me being involved in litigation. And I, at the very beginning, I was very naive. I thought uh, judges would do the right thing. I believed in the legal system. I believed in justice, that if the, if things were presented clearly enough, that, uh, that it would, that it would go, that you, that the right thing would be done. But gradually over time, I began to realize that wasn't the case. And so I began to win what I would call Pyrrhic victories before the city of Elgin. So we would spend, you know, $20,000. I think we spent maybe fifty dollars to $100,000 in legal fees, even received help from the Alliance Defense Fund. We had major law firms down in Chicago that were reputable, you know, very reputable when it came to handling uh, religious legal matters. And what we saw is we saw the city of Elgin just be able to uh, change the zoning and sue us again, and really not uh, us not be able to uh, operate the church in the way that we wanted and really force us to move. And uh, really was a terrible experience, but then it got worse. And so what, what happened was, is, uh, you know, my friend started getting sued by a number of different people and um, you know, the franchisees uh, there was a franchisee in Chicago who wanted to essentially go off on his own and do his own thing and take everything and use that after we had just paid for it and purchased it from the gentleman that we bought USA baby from. And so, you know, that cost, a lot of money. I think it was well over $300,000 in legal fees. And then the litigation continued and, and we even had the former owner and what he ended up doing was uh, suing us for the purpose of trying to regain the company. 
And so, you know, my, you know, I, I would never think that could happen, that somebody could, you could buy a company from somebody, they could come in and start to sue you over very minor things in order to try and uh, get the company back. You know, you essentially wanted the money and the company. And so that began uh, a five-year process from 2004, uh, really the end of 2004 to uh the beginning of 2009 when USA Baby was bankrupted. I think over that time period, we spent over, over $2 million in legal fees. And so having that kind of expenditure for any small business, even if you're doing well, was, uh, was, was you know, hard. But that, re <coughs> that really wasn't what destroyed USA Baby. It was a profitable company. It was really that uh, when the company went into bankruptcy, that the bankruptcy judge, who happened to be uh, the same bankruptcy judge that oversaw the United uh, bankruptcy uh, trial, you know, he was overseeing uh, USA Baby's trial, and uh, and he just made really bad decisions, allowed the franchisees to continue to use the name, trademark, and system without paying for it, and. You know, for me, I had worked so hard to get to that point, having nothing, really nothing prior to it. Uh, you know, I began to go into the bankruptcy court to re represent myself before this judge. And, um, you know, it really was treated me with terrible contempt. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I had never been treated with that level of contempt by anybody before and really wouldn't, you know, you know, I wasn't, I'm not an attorney, don't want to be an attorney, but here he was and he would, uh, you know, he would, uh, you know, I'm there to essentially represent myself and the fact that I had a stake in the, whether or not USA Baby was bankrupted. And so I came to the court, I said what they were doing or what I felt that they were doing and just sort of ignored it. And from that point, I began to draft most motions in, into the bankrupt, bankruptcy court different things to try and avert uh, USA Baby's bankruptcy. And so I, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I learned and I began to learn very quickly. And I started to use the law in order to uh, represent myself. And um, eventually I ended up getting the assets of USA Baby out of the bankruptcy court, which is unheard of. You know, I, I've, uh, it's, I filed what's called a motion to have the assets of USA Baby abandoned to me, and that ended up being granted. And so I, I was, you know, so after that point, I began to try to get, recover the assets of uh, USA Baby. And so I started to file lawsuits and started to uncover what was going on behind the scenes and be, you know, began to make real progress before the judges that I was going before. But then eventually, because I had discovered what had happened with uh, the bankruptcy judge, or at least allegations of what had happened, which there were allegations by a gentleman who owned a uh, major aluminum company in, in the Chicagoland area. And he had said that the judge in, uh, in that case um, that he was corrupt and he had a, he had formed a trust out of Maricopa County, Arizona. And that trust, uh, which was named, essentially had the initials of his name, uh, was, uh, was there 
And, and then also, then I began to, he said, he also said that one of the law firms that was also in the USA baby case, uh, had a $40 million slush fund and it's, uh, and it's right. And it, you know, where, where it would make payoffs. Hmm. So I, I began to put that into motions to try and deal with these situations. I, I even had one of the federal judges that I went before, um, and this bankruptcy judge who I know had spoken together, uh, behind the scenes. And the way that I know that is I had filed a, a lawsuit and in the lawsuit essentially, uh, and I had a motion pending before the judge to, uh, to have the, uh, to have, uh, to essentially stand in place of the trustee to pursue the assets of USA baby as the trustee. And I cited a case, which was a very well-known case, um, and he denied that motion without even hearing me. And later he reversed himself on the on his own and sent an email to me through his clerk. And I received that email at uh, like three, three something p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, within less than 10 minutes, the judge in the other case where I had a complaint pending, she moved the uh, hearing on the lawsuit that I had pending from uh, from the date that she had it set, which was one day after the uh, bankruptcy hearing that I was in, to one day after the the bankruptcy hearing of the uh, of this bankruptcy judge. Now there's no and, and the order wasn't even on the docketing system, so there's no way that the judge could have known about it through the docketing system. There's no way that he could have uh, found out about it any other way than to have communicated with the judge, right. the district court judge in that case. So that began to cause me to do much, much more investigation. And so I, I you know, began to move forward in litigation and uh, was, again, making tremendous progress. Um, but then what happened was I began to be, and, and I'll use my language, slammed by the a seventh, seventh circuit because I was appealing to them on decisions made by the uh, bankruptcy court and by the district court. Um, and so I was uh, going before them. Eventually they uh, said to me that if, uh, that they, they, and this is what, this is what the emotion said, enough is enough. You know, we essentially, we, we've had enough of you. And, uh, and if you file anything, any more frivolous motions, we're going to sanction you. Wow. And so, so because your motions to figure out your money, the bankruptcy, the the funds that were left over from all that litigation, frivolous, which is very curious. Yeah. It, 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 it was awful. I mean, here I am. I have I I have this abandoned to me, and I'm trying to recover what was stolen. I believe stolen from me. And they're saying it was frivolous. And by the way, I had won in the district court, not just once, but um, uh, I think three different times and one before the bankruptcy court. I had never been I had never been sanctioned by any other uh, district court judge or bankruptcy court judge. And so what they did is they leveled a sanction against me, which was uh, a $10,000 sanction which at that time I, I had lost everything. So I had no way for me be, you know, I'm a pastor. I'm essentially living 
off of the funds of the church making, you know, I didn't go into ministry for money. You know, I, I was doing consulting work for my friend in order to help him and to make a little extra money on the side. And so that was sort of my plan. But then, you know, to have them, uh, after losing everything, sanction me uh, $10,000, which was almost what I was making as a pastor at the time, was uh, it's unreal. And so essentially, I was unable to uh, what in fact, I even had a, a different lawsuit that had progressed past uh, the summary judgment stage because we had had a uh, uh, thefts at one of our retail locations that I was an owner of um, that was proceeding forward in the district court. And that was for one point seven million dollars. And so I, you know, essentially every district court judge who looked at this, they 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 couldn't do anything but they had to stop me from proceeding because they banned me not not just they banned me from filing anything before the district court from any court in in illinois indiana and wisconsin so i'm not i'm i'm officially at this point i'm still banned in uh, in that in that in those three areas and uh so how do you how do you ban a pastor who's never committed a crime who's trying to pursue his own assets from being able to petition file a petition before a court even if you think it's not that good you know record you know which it couldn't be frivolous because i want i mean i I, I, and so i even provided them with the uh case citations which show that it couldn't couldn't be frivolous because i had won and so that you know having all of that happen you know led to uh just uh you know that entire period i think it was it was a 10-year period where i was involved in this and so i really felt like i was a slave to the legal system during that time period i mean how do you you know, you don't, you know, even if I would have won, they would not have reimbursed any of my time. Right. The time and the anxiety and the emotional investment that precludes people from getting involved in those cases too. lawyer says, you really want to go through with this? It's going to take two years, three years, depositions, filings, costs. I mean, like you write in your book, the cost of the legal system itself prohibits justice, right? It does. I mean, I, I had a friend of mine who's a very well-known attorney. He's established uh, clinics for the poor across the country. But he he says that our, our legal system is on par with Pakistan. And so, I mean, if you think about, you know, the justice system in America being on the same level as Pakistan, that doesn't give me a lot of comfort. You know, if I have something bad happen in my life, you know, it doesn't give me comfort that I'm going to be treated like a third world country, even worse than a third world country. I might be able to get more justice in a different country. And and so one of the reasons I talk about this in my book, why that happened, is because of the changes that have been made in our legal system, which I, I you know, I, I, you know, I went through the process of trying to search why, why is this happening? When you have something that devastating happen, you begin to ask the question, why did this happen? What's going on? 
what should I do? Where, you know, where did, you know, what, what can I do? So I went ba back and started studying the history of our legal system, started studying the, uh, you know, Blackstone's legal commentaries. I'm probably one of the few ministers who's actually, maybe even uh, per people who in the legal profession who've actually read William Blackstone's legal commentaries. They don't so, require that. They would require it at a law school as like an elective legal history class, but they wouldn't mandate it as the centerpiece of your legal training. No way. Which uh, you as an attorney, I, I wouldn't know that because I've never been to law school, but I, I, uh, here I am. I studied what he said. I had thought, you know, anywhere, you know, attorneys that we hired from $5,000 an hour to $1,000 an hour. And I asked them a question. I said, what's the difference between a criminal matter and a civil matter? And not one of them was able to tell me the difference. That's and a pretty simple question. <laughs> it's a very simple question. But not one of them could provide me an honest legal answer to that. It took me reading Blackstone's legal commentaries to understand that, which is that the uh, 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 civil matter is a private matter and the uh, criminal matter is a public matter. And so, you know, as I studied, uh, you know, William Blackstone's legal commentaries, I began to understand the difference between rights and wrongs, you know, that there are public right, there are private rights and private wrongs, which is where we get our civil system. There's uh, public rights and public wrongs, which is where we get our criminal system. And so it really was uh, an eye-opening experience for me. And then I began to use those, uh, the common law uh, things that I found in William Blackstone's legal commentaries to go after even some of the judges that were that had wronged me in order to you know to, to do do something but it's very difficult to uh to uh to sue judges and you have to have uh you know there's a lot that you have to go through to be able to do it but i end up suing the judges that uh, the seven circuit judges who banned me under the context of moral ter moral turpitude which is a common law action in illinois and so I said that they basically had lost their moral turpitude. That yeah, they how did that go? That's actually a standard to be disbarred. Actually, at least in the state of California, professional. Yeah. If you engage in moral turpitude, that can be a cause. If you and that could include cheating, stealing, uh, all kinds of you know any financial fraud. I think that like one of the biggest problems lawyers have is stealing from their clients. It's actually the most common way to get disbarred is taking from client funds and you're gone. And I think that comes up, flies under moral turpitude. I have to go back and look at that. But um, yeah, how did the, how did your case? Evolve? Well, you know, I filed it in state court and, you know, eventually I had to drop it just because I didn't have any funds to pursue it. And so when you're, when you're, and I was, I, I had, I think, uh, I don't know how many other lawsuits pending, which people, not only was I suing, but people were suing me. And so when you have, uh, you know, when you have all of that happening uh, in real time, and I think right at the same time, I had, uh, you know, I had, uh, I had cataracts. So essentially, I had no money to, to be able to, uh, to get cataract surgery. And here I am, I'm unable to see. 
And I would go before the judges and I would ask them for more time to be able to do stuff. And I said, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm legally blind at this point. And they wouldn't give me any more time. They essentially just dismissed the lawsuits that I had filed and uh, without me being able to proceed and do anything. So, I mean, this is, these are, you know, it's, it's a fact. It's not, you know, when you have cataracts and you can't see, I remember I went into a bookstore and even if I was just one foot away from the books, I wouldn't be able, I could barely read the title of the book. So when you have that, those kinds of things happening and no, no reasonable accommodation being made for such a serious disability in which they have a responsibility to do under the Americans with Disability Act. But what I found is they don't follow the law if they don't want to follow the law. And they just make up their own rules as they go along. And they don't really care about what the law is. It's it's really, you know, they've turned the, the entire system on its head. And essentially, it's not about interpreting law or saying what the law is, it's that whatever we say is the law. It's very important to see. That unfortunately is becoming more common. There's a lot of recent cases where judges have just kind of made the rules up as they go along and select laws and ignore things that are basic in the Constitution. It's really sad. It's actually, a lot of these people are placed in power for not based on their talent, but their political connections, which uh, is a terrible way to to select people for the judiciary it's a it's a nightmare they're really a blight on our country i mean i uh you know i think that um you know it's it's uh you know i i uh, i love watching perry mason and you watch perry mason and the judges seem reasonable they seem to want to hear what's being said but if you go into any legal proceeding today, it's almost like you are uh, just a, a cattle and you're herded before the court, you're herded in and you're herded out. And the only reasonable goal that they have is to slaughter you, essentially to steal your wallet, steal your money, and maybe even to steal your time and potentially even steal your life. And they can hold you in contempt at a whim. You know, they there there's just uh, there's no accountability for any judge. That's uh, you know they they essentially have absolute immunity for even criminal acts that they commit on the bench when they're overseeing a case, uh, you know, against you or a case that you're standing before them in. It's uh, it's you know it's outrageous. I think I uh, I don't know how any any a reasonable person can say this is okay. And it doesn't matter whether you're on the right or on the left. You know, I think it's incumbent upon us to have a legal system that we can go before to resolve uh, a good legal system where we can resolve our disputes. And there are disputes that happen. It's okay if a dispute happens, but when, when it's, uh, it's, uh, when people can, uh, when, you know, you know, it all goes by who the judge knows and the attorney that he knows and backroom deals that are made behind the scenes and money that's changing hands behind the scenes. And all and you see people who have no idea what they're doing going before judges and they 
with a wink and a, and a smile, they will steal the life's, life savings of individuals. It is a terrible thing. Do and you I, feel like they stole the money that was incumbent to you? Do you feel like the stuff that was involved in Baby USA was stolen? Or have you heard other stories of that? Of people you know, that? I've heard other stories of it. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know how anybody who, who has, you know, any reasonable judge could say that, uh, that I didn't have some claim on the assets of USA Baby and for them just to haphazardly dismiss that claim or to have a seven a group of seven circuit judges ban me from filing anything through a sanction that's cost prohibitive to someone who doesn't have anything you know essentially it would be like mcdonald's being charged the entire uh revenue that it makes in one year as a sanction i mean would that be fair to mcdonald's if they did something wrong and the answer is no and so, you know, it has to be based upon the assets that somebody has. And so here I am, and I, I, they banned me. I'm not able to go before any court in Illinois. And here I have a $1.7 million claim that survived summary judgment against an insurance company for a loss that happened at one of the stores that I owned. And I can't, I can't, I can't see that case proceed because some supposed frivolous thing that I filed, which, you know, I, I just think what they had is they had enough of me going before them and they just said, we're done and we don't want to hear from you anymore and goodbye. Wow. And don't let, you, don't let the door hit you on the way out and we don't care if you have a right to petition or not. I mean, uh, you've heard stories about that in Chicago, Chicagoland and... Uh courts there may not function i mean it's really like depending upon which jurisdiction you're in whether you're going to get justice and i think it's pretty scary a lot of these political appointees judges are highly politicized it's very disturbing like you if you are on one party uh, in some of these places and definitely the da's in certain cities are definitely compromised in my my mind but uh it's really a shame what happened to you, but I mean, you see that as like one of the problems, many problems in the U.S., right? I mean, you say that that's just one of the kind of many shortcomings. I mean, we're at a, almost at the 40 minute mark. Can you kind of go over what people will find in this book and uh, kind of what you what you put lay out in your chapters? Sure. Yeah. No, what I talk about is I talk about, you know, I share a little bit about my story but I also talk about what, what happened relative to uh, the changes in our legal system. I provide, uh, you know, historical uh, data as far as knowing exactly what happened and how the court structures were changed. Um, I don't think people know that uh, um, the law actually changed in 1938, really in 1934 with an act that was passed by Congress called the Rules Enabling Act. And the Rules Enabling Act essentially allowed the Supreme Court to write its own rules. And so the Supreme Court began to write rules, lower courts began to write rules. If you are an attorney, you go into any court across the land, there are going to be rules that you're going to follow, whether it be the district court, this, uh, the circuit court, or the uh, Supreme Court, 
all of these rules are created by the judges themselves. Even the individual judges have the right to, to can write their own rules. And so they began to get away from uh, the uh, common law that had been in place for nearly, uh, for about over 150 years uh, into this new form of law, which was created in 1938, which was called the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. And so when the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure were passed, what they did in the very beginning is they abolished any and all common law writs except for a few. And so that big change, what it did is it led to uh, uh, the breakdown, I believe, of the system. And my question, and this, as I was uh, doing this, I began to ask the question, what allowed them to depart from the common law moorings of our country? You know, the common law is embedded in our Constitution. I don't understand how it could be changed without the passage of a, con of a constitutional amendment authorizing a different law to be used because it's a substantive definition in the Constitution. And so in my book, I, I describe how I arrived at, at, you know, all of this, which came through a series of dreams that I had received back in uh, right after I had been born again in the 1980s and 90s and uh, my own experience at USA Baby. And then uh, I watched a, a show that was uh, by Mario Murillo and Alan Didio, and they were uh, talking about uh, what was happening in America. And so when, when they were talking about it, at that moment I began to understand what the issue was. Amer you know, America has been corrupted by the illegitimate actions of America's courts. And there is no place for us to go if we have a problem. You know, if you're a homeowner, you, bought, you have a home, you hire a contractor to replace your roof, you give them a half of the down payment to have the roof changed. They don't end up doing what they said. You know, you can, there's really no play. You're going to spend a lot of money to try and recover $10,000, probably more than the cost of the litigate, you know, of the $10,000. Right. And so how, how can you, how can, how, and I think that's one of the big reasons why, uh, you, you're seeing all of this uh, this rioting that's taking place all over the country, and uh, you know there's you know uh, you know people have no access to resolving a dispute in a reasonable way, and the judges they that we have out there they really don't have any real world real world experience when it comes to having a problem of their own most of the time. You know, and so you go before them. They don't really, they don't really understand what you're talking about, and it's it's, uh, and they don't understand the harm that has happened to you because they haven't had to go through that themselves. But you know, and I talk about this in the book that I believe this is the overarching plan of, of you know, Satan himself. And um, the reason I say that is because. 
a lot of times, if you never really look at what's going on, you never understand how things progressed. And so I, I talk in my book about the, uh, the history of how we got here and the periods of rebellion in our nation and how those periods of rebellion have translated, were really the spirit of witchcraft working through our nation. In fact, even to this point, and I talk about this in the book, but, uh, you know, pro right after Donald Trump was elected in 20, 2016, there, there, you know, all of a sudden you had these uh, uh, meetings, you know, uh, grassroots meetings of witches and uh, warlocks all across the country. And they began to cast spells over uh, Donald Trump. And so President Donald Trump, they cast all these spells. I talk about this in the book. They moved from essentially what you could call white magic to black magic near the end of his presidency. And so I think it, it's almost impossible to look at President Trump and not see just how vilified he's been as a president. Whether you like him or hate him, I don't think there's any other president who has gone through as much, uh, uh, you know, character assassination, persecution, everything. They lied about everything about him. Russian <laughs> investigation. They're still going after him. This whole Mar-a-Lago thing is incredible. It's I mean, it's amazing. Unparalleled. It's unheard of that something like that would happen. I mean, to do that to a president shows you just how much uh, gumption they have. Yeah. And again, these are these are people involved in the legal system. Absolutely. Mer Merrick Garland was a judge. He's an attorney. You know, the the people who oversee the case are attorneys. Even uh, Jim Comey, who was involved in this, he was an attorney. And so you have all of, you know, in fact, I, I, you know, I say this in my book on secret corruption, but essentially today we have a government of attorneys by attorneys for attorneys, not a government. Yeah, isn't Ray an attorney? I thought Ray went to Yale Law School. These guys Excuse are all me? attorneys. Yeah, that of the FBI. <laughs> not, not all. Yeah. I don't. I, don't so, I mean, it's it's really embarrassing. Like Merrick Garland is on. He's doing some strange stuff. So is the FBI. Are the FBI harassing Trump people? Like it's like the KGB. Like it gets, and that's really what's scary is that, I think it's like the the picture on your book. These huge uh, administrative bodies are being puppeteered by very dark actors, in my opinion. The judiciary, FBI. I don't even call it the department, the DOJ. It's hard for me to say justice in regards to our DOJ. It's very hard for me to say. It's terrible. I mean, it's I, terrible to say that. Yeah. And and I, I I actually had the book cover created before all of this stuff happened. You know, I I uh, it was a, a gentleman that uh, that did this for me, but I was guiding him in what I wanted to do, and it was uh, and I just I I could see the handwriting on the wall that all of these people were trying to control what was going on in our country and whether it be the coup attempt you know or whatever you would call it again against president trump by the deep state or even now with uh you know biden and his handlers handling him yeah. You know, do we have do we truly have a Manchurian president? Yeah, we have a Manchurian president and vice president. She's <laughs> just out to lunch. There's third grade teachers with more gravitas than her. When she talks, it's terrifying because 
she had high level positions. She was the attorney general of California. She can barely like, she doesn't like, how did you get that job? It wasn't on based on talent. It couldn't have been, she had to have been a diversity hire or something strange or just a political appointment. That's what's really scary is these people are being appointed, not based upon talent. She's a perfect example. She is a, she's a lightweight. It's disturbing as heck. And well, he, like, he, he's supposedly the most popular president in history. The most <laughs> votes ever garnered. 81 million. Give me a break. It's, it tells me that. You know, I have to laugh. I can't, I can't, I can't stop laughing joke. at it, you know. Huh. And, he, and, and what's even worse, just think about if he dies. I mean, he's really on the he's he belongs. I mean, I both of my parents are very are old. I, I spend time in old older folks' homes, and he's probably the worst off of the, some of the other people I've seen. I was just around uh, just last week. A hundred year old woman has more brain capacity than he does. I'm it's scary joking. because you have a guy who might die, and you have the next in line, and you have China, Russia, North Korea. We're, we're going even to our allies, Saudi Arabia. You know, you go into Iran, what's going to happen with them? They're not going to have any uh, any uh, uh, respect for, 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 for her if she were to be in that, put in that position. And I don't even know, I don't even think the country would have any respect. I mean, it's, it's terrible to say that. Not that I, not that I'm, uh, you know, against her. I just, it's, 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 uh, when you put when you put that in perspective, and you know here we are potentially on the brink of a nuclear. We are on the brink. It's a, one of these things that happens in world wars, in first world war, second world war was there was this space where there was jockeying. There was in World War One, people started mobilizing, and that brought things tensions. And then there was that huge battle. But the prelude to that was a very slow kind of aggregation of events and the same thing happened in world war ii i mean hitler was pushing but it didn't explode right away there were just these little predicates well those things are happening right now they they are nord stream that was yesterday the it should be it should it should be it should be we have so many problems like the stuff you enumerated and listed that the ukraine meet should mean nothing to any american zero it does that doesn't matter if Russia feels threatened, Russia's had two really bloody incursions, the last World War II and then Napoleon. So they have issues with their border that we should have kind of issues with their border too, which is strange. Like the, pol- the political system here, it's as bad as the like, where are these people come from? They don't, they don't like represent the, the we're being represented with we're not being represented, the American people in general. It's really crazy. So yeah, we're in trouble. Like there's somebody puppeteering this whole thing. And it's uh, not doing it in the benefit of the Americans. No, they're not. And I think every, every American, especially, and I, and what I say in my book, and I think this is really the um, overarching theme of the book, that we have a spiritual enemy. I believe that spiritual enemy is orchestrating what's taking place right now in our country. And I believe that the only uh, body that has the, ability to deal with that is the church and through the authority of the church, not civic or civil authority, but through the spiritual authority. And so it really is a, a, you know, and so I've been trying to awaken spiritual leaders to the responsibility that we have 
as spiritual leaders to be confronting the evil that we see happening. And we have, uh, you know, and we, we can do that through prayer. We can do that through the preaching of the gospel, which I believe one of the greatest absences in the church today is the absence of the message of the gospel. You know, our nation was transformed by the gospel. And what you see is that the gospel changes our country. And that's been the case since the founding. If you go back to uh, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield in the 1700s to the first great awakening, right? The first great great awakening to the second great awakening. And uh, which you had with Charles Finney and, and him going from, uh, you know, essentially leading people into salvation to D.L. Moody in uh, the 1900s. And so you see that the church has always been there to step into place when things were going bad in our country. And so I think spiritual leaders need to take their place. Uh, not, And I'm not talking about you know, civil action. I'm really talking about us doing our job, which is leading, you know, uh, preaching the gospel, you know, prayer, leading people in prayer in humility and repentance. Those are the things that change people's hearts. And, and eventually if people's hearts aren't changed, you know, there's no law that you can pass to try and get people to do something that they don't want to do. You know, you may be able to punish it. You know, we learned that with prohibition, and I talk about that in my book. But prohibition, it was in people's hearts to drink. You had the rise of the mafia during that time period, but the church tried to impose a civil action rather than using spiritual authority, which is what we've been given, which is to preach the gospel to preach the good news, to pray, to lead, to to help people to come into a place of repentance and humility and have, uh, you know, some type of moral integrity. And I think if we had that, whether it be in our, and in fact, in fact, I believe we need that now more than ever in our, in our leaders, we need to be looking for that in our leaders. We need to be looking for that in judges, that they have moral integrity, you know, um, all of that. I mean, you know, even if a first, you know, if a if a judge during the uh, was a, uh, essentially appointed by the president, you know, the first president, George Washington, was caught speaking, uh, cursing or doing something like that, blaspheming he would be removed from office, which actually happened. And so, you know, here we are today and and we have so little respect for ourselves that we have no ability to control ourselves because ministers aren't teaching people, you know, preaching the good news, teaching people how to respect themselves, parents how to raise their children, parents how to, you know, raise good families, which to me, I think is the backbone of our country. You know, that that is the backbone of the country. And it's really, and, you know, and pastors haven't been uh, stepping up to the plate and really leading in that area to require men 
to be morally accountable for raising their family, requiring women to be more morally accountable for raising their daughters, where they have a modicum of respect for themselves. I mean, even uh, I was listening to, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a movie called a man, a man by the name of Peter, a man called Peter. And it's a life story of uh, uh, um, uh, Peter Marshall Sr. And his wife, Kat, before she became his wife, Catherine Marshall, you know, she went to an event in order to preach the gospel. And as she was preaching it, what ended up happening is uh, there were all these jeering from different people. There were young girls who were smoking, doing all of these things. And she said to the women, and she started talking about a message that she had heard from her pastor, Peter Marshall Sr. And he was saying, uh, you know, about women, you know, why would a woman lower herself to become a man? This is Peter Marshall Sr. preaching. This is right around the same time before, maybe immediately after, after women's suffrage, maybe right around that same time. Because he understood and was preaching that women had a had a had a different role, and they, he talked about their great role in society. And as she was preaching that, the women began to change and became convicted by their own conduct. And he said, "No man would ever paint a picture of a woman holding a cigar, a cigarette, or a cigar in her in her in her hand." And that that being lauded as a great painting like uh, Mona Lisa and uh, espousing her beauty. And so, you know, we don't have to, you know, women don't have to cheapen themselves. Men don't have to cheapen themselves. We have, we, we, you know, and pastors should be leading, uh, you know, men and women into God for the purpose of helping them to discover who they really are. And one of the major points, and I think Jesus said this in his uh, when he was talking with the Pharisees, and they had come to him and said, shall we pay taxes? And so a lot of ministers talk about taxes and we should pay taxes and everything. And Jesus said, show me whose inscription is on the, show me the, who's on the penny. And so he looked at it and he said to them, he said, who is this? And they said, Caesar. And he said, and they were blown away by this statement, but he said, render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and render to God the things which are God's. And what we've been doing is rendering to Caesar what's, what's Caesar's, but we haven't been rendering to God, what God what's God's. And every man, woman, and child on planet Earth, every person in America is made in the image of God. And if pastors aren't espousing that, sharing that, showing that, that each one of us is made in God's image, you know, it's such a basic thing. And here we are, we don't, we really don't think of ourselves in that way. And so it's, it, it would be beautiful if we could start to realize that and the pastors were sharing that with people and saying, you know, you're made in the image of God. Let's 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 try to act in his character and nature 
which Jesus demonstrated to us, those are the attributes that we should laud and we should, uh, we should uh, cherish. That's what made our country great. That's what made America great. I agree. We have to get back to that. That's the real mega. That's the real making America great again. It's repentance. We're like in an Old Testament time where everybody needs to repent. But Scott, we're at the uh, 60 minute mark. Is there anything, what, what we're, where, where's the best place for people to get breaking the spell of America? You know, the best place would be at Amazon. You know, we, we uh, at Amazon.com, they can look under my name, Scott Wallace. Um, and uh, if they do that, you know, my, my book will come up to the very top. And, um, you know, I hope that they will buy a copy of the book, read it. And then I would ask if somebody, you know, if they would be willing to share a review just to uh, share the book, because, you know, I'm really trying to get it out there for, especially for uh, spiritual leaders. I, 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 it would be wonderful if every, uh, every person listening would get a copy for their pastor or for their spiritual leader. You know, I really am, am trying to impact the them not that i don't want to touch people in general and share with them my story but i really would like uh pastors and leaders to be able to know that yes we can stem the tide of evil and i believe that if they can do that and and then also write a good review you know that really will help uh people and and wanting to buy the book and you know, really i think and I, I believe it can make a difference not only in this book and in the book on judicial on the secret corruption book, you know, th- those two books really can, uh, I believe, transform America if they can get to the top uh, top of the list and, and people read them. Um, and where's the best place, Scott? Where's the best place for people to reach out to you? Do you have a social media or a website? I do. Well, I you know, I, I, I'm on Facebook and they can uh, reach out to me on Facebook. And that's uh, one of the best places. Um you know, I also have uh, my publishing company, which is Lighthouse Publications, which is uh, www.lighthouse-publications.com. And, uh, but the, or at, uh, they can go to www.scottwallis.me, uh, M-E, and they can get more information about me and, and order my books there as well. It's scottwallis.me, is that right? That's correct. Yes. And it's W-A-L-L-I-S. So correct. thanks so much for your time. Really fascinating. And thanks for sharing all your stories. Again, the topic of the book and the, the title of the book is Breaking the Spell Over America, How to Stop Satan's Plan to Destroy America with Scott Wallace. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, William. We really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. All right, take care. Stay there. Blessings. Bye-bye. Stay there. Stay there.